Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the uh, auditorium of AccessibleWorld.org to our special program series. Our uh, noted speaker this evening is a very dear friend of Accessible World, Mr. Edwin Cooney. Mr. Cooney has chosen to divide this great topic into two parts. History student Edwin Cooney will examine the major decisions made by Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president, using the Civil War as the background rather than the theme of his presentation. Edwin Cooney will explore the forces that President Lincoln faced during the decision-making process. The three major decisions to be discussed were will be one, how the president managed the beginning of the war to how the purpose of the conflict shifted from being about preserving the Union to freeing the slaves, and three, how President Lincoln used the constitutional authority, his constitutional authority, to suspend civil liberties during the Civil War. Although Mr. Cooney deeply believes that Abraham Lincoln was probably the wisest man ever to occupy the presidency. He believes that Mr. Lincoln made at least one major miscalculation that made the war inevitable. We want to thank you for joining Mr. Cooney this evening. If you so desire, challenge his conclusions while offering your own, if you wish. Without further ado... I introduce at this time my friend, Mr. Edwin Cooney. But let me unlock the um, the key here. Thank you very much, Bob. Hi, everyone. I have to start with something in the way of of a confession. They say confession is good for the spirit. Uh, anytime. I talk or, well, many times I talk or write about a president. And I can be objective about most presidents, including my my favorite modern president, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. I can be objective about Jimmy Carter. But it's pretty hard to be anything but, well, but feeling a sense of awe about Abraham Lincoln. So let's approach Mr. Lincoln tonight by talking perhaps about his less perfect side. His image, his physical image. He was six foot four inches tall in height, weighed about 180 pounds as president. His face was long and bony and even wrinkled. His eyes were gray. His left eye was slightly above his right eye. He had a mold or a wart above the corner of his mouth. His thick eyebrows had a tendency to stick out, as his law partner, William Herndon, put it. It kind of looked like rocks coming out of the side of a hill. His hair was coarse and black, graying at the temples by the time he became president. He had prominent cheekbones. Uh, His carriage was normal for a man about five foot eight from his shoulders to his hips. 
His chest was sunken and narrow. Hence he had um, a tendency, his voice had a tendency to be high and thin, especially when he was orating. He could orate to the corners of practically any hall and to the back of many crowds when he was speaking outside. His limbs, however, were very long, way out of proportion. It was later determined that he probably suffered from uh, Marfan syndrome. To most people, he was homely. Some even insisted that he was ugly. But this is what his private secretary, John J. Nicolay, wrote. Lincoln's features were too complex to be accurately recorded by painters, sculptors, or even photographers. Graphic arts were powerless before a face that moved through a thousand delicate gradations of line and contour, light and shade, sparkle of the eye and curve of the lip, the long gamut of expression from grave to gay and back again, from the jollity of laughter to that far away look. My two lads would probably say that he was a bit of a strange-looking dude as he approached the podium atop the east portico of the Capitol on the afternoon of Monday, March the 4th, 1861. His task as the new president was to console the nation, to see if he could lessen the tension. And it's here that I'm going to uh, make reference to what I, and at least one of the authors that I read in preparation for this, feels that he may have made made a major mistake. When he was elected on November the 6th of 1860, one of four candidates for the presidency, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, Um, he chose not to speak out. He chose not to coddle the South. The South, as far as he was concerned, had had threatened to um, secede from the Union as far back as 1832 or 1833 when, when, when Andrew Jackson refused to uh, refute, well, at least South Carolina did on that occasion. They had um, threatened to secede. And then they threatened to secede uh, in the 1840s and certainly by 1850 if there wasn't if the, if the um, uh, fugitive slave law wasn't a part of the Compromise of 1850. They threatened to secede again in 1856, and there, was, there were a number of conventions held in the South. So Lincoln didn't really take it personally. He received a letter from Connecticut Senator Truman Smith shortly after the election urging him to speak out. But he decided not to because he decided that were he to speak out, he would appear to be apologizing for a Republican victory. Lincoln's victory was pretty substantial in the North and in the West. In fact, he won every state north of the Mason-Dixon line. With the exception of New Jersey, he split 
New Jersey with um, with John C. Breckinridge. He won 180 electoral votes. John C. Breckinridge, vice president, the, the sitting vice president, won 72 electoral votes. John Bell, the constitutional union party, won 39 electoral votes. And Stephen A. Douglas won only 12. He won only the state of New Jersey. Lincoln carried 18 states. Breckinridge carried 11. Bell carried three states. And Stephen A. Douglas carried one state. But here's what's, what's fascinating. Lincoln won 1,865,908 votes, and that's only 39.48% of, of the total vote. Douglas, who only got one state and 12 votes, was the second biggest vote getter. He won 1,308,201, that's 29.50%. And John C. Breckinridge, who got the second most electoral votes, won less than a million votes, 808,019, 18.1% of the vote. And finally, John Bell um, won 590,901 votes, about 12.6% of the vote. So you can see how that, that popular vote. Um, one source I read said that uh, Lincoln didn't get a single vote in 10 of the southern states. It doesn't say which, which state he got some votes in, and I, I must confess, confess I have uh, a bit of curiosity about that. So as he spoke to the nation on March the 4th, his, um, his goal was to more or less quiet the nation, to, 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 least, to lessen the tensions if, if he possibly could. And this is what he had to say in part. Apprehension seems to exist among the people of the southern states that by the accession of a Republican administration, their property, their peace, and their personal security are to be endangered. There has never been any reasonable cause for such apprehension. I have no purpose directly or indirectly, to interfere with slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. I hold that in contemplation of the universal law and the, law and the Constitution, the union of these states is perpetual. Perpetuity is implied, if not expressed, in the, fundal, in the fundamental law of all, of all governments. It is safe to assert that no government proper had a provision in its organic law for its own termination. Now that was, that was in counter-arguing those who assert that the Union was a Union due to the agreement of the states. I'll talk more about how Lincoln saw the Union after I finish here. But he's saying the Union is perpetual. No one has the right to leave the Union is anarchy. In your hands, my dissatisfied fellow citizens, and not in mine, is the, is the momentous question of civil war. 
the government will not assail you. You can't have any conflict without yourselves being the aggressors. You have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government, while I shall have the most solemn one to preserve, to protect, and defend it. I am loath to close. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. The passion may have, may have strained. It must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory stretching from the battlefield and every patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched as surely they will be by the better angel of our nature. In many ways, Abraham Lincoln was a typical Whig slash Republican. The Whig Party was the primary party in opposition to the Democrats prior to the election of 1860. He believed in government assistance. He believed government had a responsibility to help the country grow. It was called the American system. It was supported by Daniel Webster and Henry Clay. And it proposed government aid for railroads and canals and harbors and uh, roads, especially that cross state lines. So a, the government had a role to play. Lincoln believed in, in, in every person's life, or at least in the life of the whole country. Of course, the immediate problem facing Lincoln on the morning of Tuesday, the 5th of March, 1861, when he got to his desk, was what to do about the federal garrison at Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor in South Carolina. President Buchanan, not surprisingly, had pretty much left the problem to Lincoln, although he did assert that the federal government had every right to um, keep federal territory open, hold territory that, that belonged to it. Of course, the people of South Carolina were not too happy about a federal facility and a harbor of one of its major ports. If he were to resupply, and, and, and Major Robert Anderson of Kentucky, who was um, the major in the north who had command of, the, of, of Fort Sumter, said he had about six weeks of supplies and then he'd have to give up the fort without support. If he gave up the fort, if he simply surrendered the fort, um, he would be seen 
although it would, it would probably prevent um, additional states from seceding, it would probably unite both the North and the South. The problem is that it would seem to give recognition to the Confederacy, and he couldn't afford to do that. If he resupplied and reinforced the fort, and the guesstimation was that it would take probably five or six months to um, fully support the fort, and there would, in addition to supplies and more men, he'd probably have to send warships in, into, the era, into the area. It would unite the North, and it would probably unite the South. The problem being is that the South would then become, at least in the eyes of European nations to which the South was anxious to be, by which the, the South was anxious to receive recognition, it would probably, the South would be a martyr. And they might recognize the South and allow it to sell cotton to them and therefore increase the strength of its economy. If he merely sent supplies to the fort and the South didn't respond in any way, again, that would strengthen him in the North. Um, but in addition to that, the South would look bad because there were forces in the South that said, you've got to do something. There were, editor there were editorials in, in Richmond and in Atlanta and New Orleans and, and even in Charleston that if President Davis, the new president of the Confederacy, didn't do something about the federal government, if it were determined to send supplies to Fort Sumter, then some of the states might even re-enter the Union. So, what was he to do? Um, after taking office, I believe it was about the 12th of March, he received a recommendation from the commander of the army, of, of, of the general in charge, Winfield Scott, it was about the 12th of March, suggesting privately against resupplying the garrison. And Lincoln was quite concerned. On the 15th of March, on Friday the 15th of March, Lincoln held a cabinet mate, a meeting. And by a vote of five to two, including Secretary of State Seward, the cabinet voted not to resupply Fort Sumter. Of course, it was Lincoln who would have the final word. On Thursday, the 28th of March, Lincoln read to an emergency cabinet meeting Scott's recommendation not merely to not resupply the fort, but to surrender the fort. And that brought the cabinet around. They decided, no, you couldn't surrender the fort. You had at least to support the fort. Lincoln faced another problem. <clears throat> As Doris Kearns Goodwin points out in her book, um, Team of Rivals, Lincoln had appointed some of the most powerful, some of the most experienced men to cabinet positions. And these were men with some vanity. 
Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase of Ohio. The Secretary of the Interior. Um, I'm sorry, Attorney General Edward Bates of New Jersey. Or, I'm, I'm sorry, of Missouri. Uh, Secretary of the Treasury, Simon Cameron of Pennsylvania. And of course, most notably, the Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase of Ohio. These were men of considerable vanity, and some of them still had presidential ambitions in themselves. Oh, did I mention Secretary of State William Seward of New York? And he was the most prominent one. Seward was the man who expected to get the Republican presidential nomination in 1860 until it just turned out he didn't have enough support. He thought that maybe if he couldn't be president by accepting the secretaryship of state, that he could be sort of the president's prime minister. And to that end, he began to work behind Lincoln's back. How would Lincoln handle it? Would he be angry or would he be patient? Lincoln learned on the 1st of April that the secretary had been privately told, telling commissioners from the South that the president was going to surrender. Fort Sumter. And Lincoln was astonished you know, to think that his secretary of state would do that. But he kept his cool. He met with him on the 1st of April, and he wrote, he wrote him, he started to write him a note, but he called him in and he told him, he said, this decision is mine. The decision whether to supply Fort Sumter or whether to surrender it is mine. It isn't anyone else's. I must make it alone, he told him. On Thursday, April 4th, Lincoln ordered this. Fort Sumter be resupplied. On the 6th of April, he informed Governor Andrew Pickens of South Carolina that he would be resupplying Fort Sumter. And of course, Governor Pickens went to uh, President Davis, the new president of the Confederacy. Now, I failed to mention, and I should have a few minutes ago, that when Lincoln became president, seven states had seceded from the Union, beginning with, with South Carolina on the 20th of September. South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas. And as I said a few minutes ago, one of the factors that Lincoln had to consider in, 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 as to how he handled the situation around Fort Sumter, he wanted as many states, especially the states in the Upper South, to stay in the Union. Because they could increase the economic and military power of the South uh, considerably. So North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, Arkansas, Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, critically Maryland, and Delaware were still up for grabs when Lincoln became president. And we began planning as to how to handle the crisis at Fort Sumter. Um, at 4.30 a.m. on the morning of Friday, the... Um, 
14th of April. Uh, uh, oh, it doesn't matter, really. Okay. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm looking at something, and, it, and, it, and it, doesn't, it doesn't look right to me, but that's okay. <clears throat> Fort Sumter was attacked by um, PGTP, PG, PGT Beauregard, Pierre Beauregard. And the fort surrendered the following morning. It took 14 hours for the fort to surrender. On Saturday, the 14th of April, suddenly I think my dates are off, so maybe I'll stop giving them. On the 14th of April, on, on Sunday, the 14th of April, Lincoln met, and this was for the last time with Stephen A. Douglas. Stephen A. Douglas, who'd been his friend and his political opponent in, in um, Illinois, Douglas had sat behind him at the inauguration and actually held the president's hat. That's not a myth. A uh, number of authors that I read uh, confirmed the story. He met with Douglas, and Douglas, when he told him he was going to call up a, a 75,000 troops, that he planned to call up 75,000 troops, Douglas's response was, well, why don't you call up 200,000? He fully supported the Union in his old... Um, political antagonist, friendly antagonist, Abraham Lincoln. That was the last time they would meet. Douglas would die uh, on the 2nd of June. On April 15th, President Lincoln called up 75,000 troops. On Wednesday, the 17th of May, Virginia issued an ordinance of secession to be voted on in May. There were no lives, no bloodshed at um, Fort Sumter, but on Friday, the 19th of April, Baltimore rioted against the Massachusetts 6th Regiment. Sorry about that. The Massachusetts 6th Regiment it was coming to the aid of, of, of the North. Um, the soldiers came into Baltimore and had to cross the city to get on the Camden train to go from Baltimore to Washington. And uh, while it was passing through the city, uh, crowds began throwing stones and bricks, and some of the soldiers fired on the citizens, and of course some of the citizens fired back. Four soldiers were killed and 12 civilians were killed. The first bloodshed of the Civil War. Governor Thomas Hicks of, of Maryland and uh, Mayor George W. Brown of Baltimore both urged the President not to send any more troops to Maryland. But there was trouble. And um, most of northern and central Maryland was Unionist. But the very southern part of Maryland, right around Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, was heavily secessionist. And the secessionists began to cut off the rail traffic and the telegraph wires between Washington and um, 
the north, thus making it difficult for additional assistance from uh, other states to come, you know, to, to come to the aid of Washington. On the 21st of April, the president met with some 50, a delegation of 50 citizens from Baltimore, supposedly including Mayor Brown, urging him to send more, send no troops, no further troops into, into uh, Maryland. And, and, and Lincoln finally lost his patience. He said, look, it was your citizens who made war on the, on the regiment as it was peaceably passing through the city. He said, the soldiers aren't moles, they can't burrow through the ground. They're not birds, they can't fly over the city. So what do you want me to do? Do you want me to break my oath? It's not Jackson, it's not Washington. It's not even manly to expect that I would not meet my responsibilities. And so, that was the beginning of the that was the beginning of the first crisis in Maryland. On Thursday, April the 25th, Washington D.C. Washington D.C. was finally relieved by the Seventh Regiment of the State of New York. On the 27th of April, the president suspended the writ of habeas corpus. It had to begin to do something about these gangs of secessionists. On Saturday the 25th of May, John Merriman of Maryland is imprisoned in Fort McHenry. That's incidentally the same fort over which uh, the flag flew the night that uh, in, during the War of 1812 that Francis Scott Key wrote the Star Spangled Banner. Um, Merriman had, was charged with drilling Confederate troops in the state of Maryland to aid Maryland to secede. On the 28th of May, the circuit court judge, who happened to be the Chief Justice of the United States, Roger B. Taney, issued for a writ of habeas corpus for merit for Merriman to the officers at Fort McHenry. And under Lincoln's orders, Merriman was not released. He was thus defying the Chief Justice of the United States. Chief Justice Taney insisted that Article One, which is given to the powers of Congress, that Article One, Section 9, um, specifies that the right of habeas corpus will not be suspended unless when, in cases of rebellion, invasion, the public safety may require it. And since it was under the uh, Section 1, Article 1 of the Constitution, which, which states that's in the power of Congress, uh, he, he argued that Lincoln was not, had no right to issue the habeas corpus. How did Lincoln handle this? He didn't do anything about it. All he did was issue the order, and the order was, of course, carried out. So these, that was the issue that faced Lincoln in May, in June, and into July when 
the final session of the 37th Congress met on the 4th of July. And Lincoln addressed the Congress on this occasion. And he asked, kind of, although it was, a, it was back then presidents didn't address the Congress the way they do today. Uh, they had attended, they, they wrote messages that were given to the clerk of the House of Representatives and he would read it to the Congress sitting in joint session. <clears throat> but Lincoln openly reflected on the situation as it stood. He openly asked, should a lawgiver ever break the law? And then he asked, should all laws be executed and the government go to pieces lest the law having to do with habeas corpus be violated? Other points he covered in this message is that this was not a war between governments. It was a people's war. It was a war against anarchy. To recognize that it is a war against another government would be to suggest that the South had a right to secede. He also asserted in that address that the union, that the objective of a union form of government was that of elevating the condition of men. To lift the artificial weights off the, uh, the, artificial weights off the shoulders of men. To clear the paths of laudable pursuit for all. And for all, an unfettered start in a fair chance in the race of life. Lincoln believed that the Union was not an end, but it was itself a means to an end. To create a society that allows all boats to rise on the crest of liberty and freedom. Now, the fall of 1861, there would be more arrests in Maryland. The mayor, who was a bit skittish, he was never sure whether he was a unionist or whether he was a secessionist, uh, was arrested. The chief of police in Baltimore was arrested. Uh, the president arrested, I mean, had arrested about 30 members of the state legislature. They were a minority. And... Uh, by the end of September, Maryland was assured as a unionist state. It was forcible, but it had to be done. Now in the summer, in the late July of 1861, Congress passed a law, I'm sorry, passed a resolution. In July of 1861, the Congress passed a resolution declaring that the preservation of the Union is the sole purpose of the conflict. Congress incidentally took no action on um, the question of habeas corpus and the president just kind of let it go. In addition to mob control in Baltimore, the president had very serious situation in three other states. Um, 
I think I'll talk about Missouri first. The governor of Missouri, Claiborne Jackson, had urged the state to secede from the Union, uh, but he was outmaneuvered a, a, a convention instead of a, con a, a state convention instead of the uh, legislature met, and decided that Missouri should stay in the Union. But there was a large portion of the population in Missouri that um, wanted to secede. In fact, probably most of the states south and west of St. Louis wanted to secede from the Union. Uh, Lincoln decided that he needed, in addition to the very effective Union general, um, Nathan Lyon, he needed another powerful man in Missouri, and so he appointed John C. Fremont, the pathfinder, to be the um, to be the commanding general in Missouri. He moved into St. Louis on July the 25th, and he set up. He said he bought a six thousand dollar home, and he had servants all around him. And he was, he was. He, John C. Fremont it turned out would be more about show than he would be about substance. But he was. He he he'd been the first Republican presidential nominee in 1856, and so he had a lot of weight in the party. But he was not very effective as a commander. On Saturday, August the 10th, Nathan Lyon chased the um, uh, chased the the southern troops under um, under General Par under General Price to the southwestern corner of the state, Wilson's Creek, about 10 miles south of Springfield, Missouri. And although he surrounded the city, or surrounded Wilson's Creek, he lost the battle and it was eventually routed. And he was killed in the battle. So then General Price moved to central Missouri and attacked the city of Lexington. Um, And so all of Missouri was in Union hands. I'm sorry, it was in Confederate hands. All of Missouri was in Confederate hands. What was Fremont going to do? Fremont was desperate. He was losing the state. All he had was St. Louis, and they barely held St. Louis. On Friday, August the 30th, Fremont, in desperation, issued a proclamation. First, he instituted martial law throughout the state. Second, he proclaimed the death penalty for all guerrillas caught behind Union lines. The third thing he did was to declare that all slaves in Missouri were to be emancipated. Lincoln couldn't allow it. He just couldn't allow it. If he did, he might lose Kentucky. In fact, he said more than once, I hope that God will be on my side 
but I must have Kentucky. Kentucky was in a very strategic place. It was on the Ohio River. The Ohio River uh, runs along the northern border of Kentucky. Um, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana are on Kentucky's north border, as, was, as would be the state of West Virginia. Um, and so it was very strategic. He couldn't lose Kentucky. Now, Kentucky had um, voted to not to, jo to join neither the Union nor the Confederacy in the spring of 1861. It chose to be it chose to be neutral. And the feeling was that if uh, if anything serious happened, if either, if, if either the South or the North violated that neutrality, that the state would go the other way. And on Wednesday, September the 4th, Confederate forces under Leodonis Polk invaded Kentucky and occupied Columbus, violating Kentucky's neutrality. And so the following day, the Kentucky legislature declared three to one that the state would go to the side of the Union. And on Friday, September the 6th, a little-known lieutenant general by the name of Ulysses S. Grant informed the speaker of the legislature of Kentucky that he intended to invade and hold Paducah, which was at the mouth of the, of the Tennessee River and at the Tennessee and Ohio River. Um, Governor Beriah McGothan and former vice president and then, and then Senator Breckinridge uh, sought, urged Kentucky to join, of course, the Confederacy, which, of course, it wouldn't do. McGothan's term ended in August, and he wasn't re-elected. And um, Senator Breckinridge would eventually be expelled by the United States Senate uh, in, uh, in August of, uh, I'm sorry, in, in December of 1861. But Kentucky did stay in the Union. And as I said, President Lincoln had said, I need God on my side. But even more, I must have Kentucky. Kentucky, ironically, was the home of both Lincoln, the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln, and the president of the Confederacy, uh, Jefferson Davis. By now, the Confederacy consists of 11 states. North Carolina... Virginia, Tennessee, and Arkansas have joined the Confederacy. And although the Confederacy lists Missouri and Kentucky and Maryland as states, they will not, or as, as new states in, in its uh, uh, government, they will not be states. By the end of 1861, while unity is not assured in the north. It's more certain than it was 
in the summertime. And of course, there's another issue that is going to come to the fore, and that's the issue that nobody wants to talk about, including President Lincoln. It's the issue of slavery. How should he handle it? What are the factors that he has to take into consideration aside from union? And that's what we're going to talk about with Bob's invitation on the 22nd of March. We'll begin to talk about the key issue. How was it that slavery became the dominant issue? What forces forced Lincoln to make it the issue? How was it to his advantage, and what would the reaction be to it? We'll talk about that on the 22nd of March. Any questions, I'll be happy to answer them. Okay, let's see if any people have questions. They had a fine presentation as usual, and we just expect that. I kind of want to start. In your newswire, you, you state that, uh, and if you're, not pre- if you're going to do it next time, please tell me, that Lincoln made a fatal mistake, that you, you admired him, you know, the wisest uh, man we've ever had in the presidency. You admired him, but he made a fatal mistake. Did I miss that, or are you going to talk about it next time, may I ask, please? Oh, the mistake was between the time of his election and um, his inauguration, he didn't make some efforts to calm the South. Uh, I, Ronald White, uh, one, of his, uh, the, the, uh, one of his more recent and I think thorough biographers, believes that. Doris Kearns Goodwin doesn't pay a lot of attention to it. Uh, but I, I think Lincoln could have done more. I mean, uh, you know, there were efforts in Congress to, uh, you know, keep the Union together. There was the Crittenden Compromise, which, among other things, offered to make it a constitutional amendment that uh, um, that slavery would be perpetually uh, allowed along the lines of the, the, the Missouri Compromise, uh, would make it illegal to... You know, for slaves to go from for mostly concessions to the South, Lincoln was opposed to that, to the Crittenden Compromise. But Lincoln didn't really reach out in the way that Lincoln did. Lincoln didn't really speak the way Lincoln could. He was one of the most persuasive speakers his time, as inelegant as he as he could or as in, as he could be at times. Um, I think that was a mistake. I think. Although he ultimately saved Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and, and Missouri, um, I think he could have saved more had he spoken out. Now, he was, as I say, he was reluctant to do that because he thought if he, if he appeared apologetic or uh, appeared too conciliatory, that perhaps uh, uh, he would appear to be apologizing for his very narrow victory. And actually, the 39 point for 8% of the popular vote is the lowest vote that a major party presidential candidate has, has ever gotten. Okay, thank you. Uh, any other question, please? I have one about what is habeas corpus. Can you explain that to us? Well, if you're a, if, in the absence of habeas corpus, if, if, you're, arrest, if you're arrested, Kurt, um, nobody has to tell anybody where you are. Habeas corpus means you show the body. You know, you show that somebody 
hasn't just been simply thrown into jail and lost. So habeas corpus is the right to be seen by a judge, and um, it also allows for, uh, perhaps there's a law student or two that could correct me on this, but I think it also guarantees a speedy trial. I think it's right on, and that means have the body in Latin. You must show some reason for keeping someone in jail. And uh, and another guy I thought of was Congressman Vallandigham. Of course, he he sent those guys. He sent him south, I gather. Yeah, you're giving away part of my story next time. I'll even tell you that, well, either I'll tell you during the course of the presentation or afterward I'll tell you how he died. I mean, uh, Clement Vallandigham was quite a character. (laughs) Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Okay, another question, please. Just to comment on habeas corpus, my understanding is that, as you say, it's from Latin to you know, show me the body so that you, you know what you're being accused of, so you can't be just arrested for no good reason. And then these days it often also means that you know, you're expected due process. That's my friend Chris Clark from Britain. You can tell. Actually, you can tell he's a southerner, can't you? That southern accent, Chris. Thank you. Very good. Okay, uh, another question, please. But I think what you did this time was good. Well done is give us background. Just, you know, uh, you're telling us about Lincoln. I was thinking as you were talking about his stature and everything that people said later that he probably had Marfans. Of course, Mrs. Lincoln was from Kentucky, and we already thought she was a spy anyway. So, But he wanted to save Kentucky, and you point out why, why he really did. So you gave us a lot of background this time, and that was good. Let's see if we have any other questions, please. Okay, Ed, I think we're letting you off easy this time. I don't hear any questions, but I'm sure there will be by the conclusion of your remarks March 22nd. Well, Bob, it's always a little nerve-wracking. I think I was a little... It, it, it's funny. I don't really feel good about the smoothness of my presentation. I was smoother uh, reading than I was presenting tonight, and yet I know the... I know the um, I know the material reasonably well, but it's um, I'm still getting used to lecturing. Well, I must say I kind of came in kind of in the middle, kind of toward the end, but what I heard, I liked. And, well, I'm a big history buff, so. I, too, am a big history buff, and I, uh, I've been fascinated by uh, Abraham Lincoln, and I think you did an excellent job, and I appreciate all the information you gave us. Uh, good. I'm glad you guys said that because Ed's, Ed's the hardest guy on himself. He really does a lot of research, and he'll he'll worry about a date when you say, oh, it's okay, Ed, move on. You can look it up later, but he wants it right, and that's why we have him here. He's, he's really cares very much and does outstanding research, and we thank him so much. Oh, I think it's a fantastic job, Ed. Uh, you have nothing at all to worry about. It all came across just fine. I could hear every word, and so good work. Nice going. You're certainly all very kind, and we'll be back on the 22nd of March. Same same topic, Abraham Lincoln. If it's the same topic, I'll def- definitely be there, or be here, rather. Why do we have to wait that long? Doggone it. 22nd of March is the day after spring has begun. In fact, uh, it won't be long then. It will only be a week until the opening of baseball season. What is this? Oh, man. I thought we'd be back sooner. <laughs> well, it takes time to research, and to find openings in our schedule, too. So I'm at fault a little bit. But again, Ed, on behalf of our special program series, we thank you so very much. A great job. Thank you very much, Bob, and thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody, for coming.